Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. So we are in the final discussion of Michelle Obama's The Light We Carry, and we're going over chapters 8, 9, and 10 today. To hop in, we have a smaller group today, so was there any like highlights to this section of the reading that y'all want to start with? Uh, I think one thing that did stick out to me was um, her talking about the speech she was making and her security nets kind of falling out with the teleprompter not working and the confidence meter not working. So to me, from that, I took, if you're more prepared, you'll always feel better. Like, you'll be able to, like, ace the interview if you know what you're going to ask, what you're going to talk about. So the fact that she um, makes sure she tells us that she tries to remember every speech, everything she has to do, uh, I guess I didn't think she would go that far. It would just be completely relying on reading what somebody else did. So, Yeah, that, that does speak to her. And I think that kind of ties into her wanting to, um, I forget how what she called it, but um, I know she called it blend in or never seeming like she's, um, I don't know, like she, she wants to make sure that she's saying the right She thing, called it code switching. Which, P.S., I love that word because mm-hmm. it needs to be used more. Um, I do a whole unit in, in my for my school on code switching and how ev- everybody code switches. I mean, it is a very, it can be a very cultural thing depending on, you know, how you're raised. And, um, but my son switched into his school speak today. And I was like, what are you saying? (laughs) No idea what you're saying. Um, But yeah, no, the code switching. um, Yes. And, And a lot of that is very cultural. And so, you know, she talked about that going back to her youth how at home her mother made her speak, I think she called it proper English or she had a term, Um, but then she'd go out in the community and they'd be like, you sound like a white girl, you know? So she would kind of straddle that line between sounding, you know, more like her peers. Um, And yeah, so she code switched for sure, which I I just, I love, I, I, I love that word. And that was one of the things that I highlighted. I think it was in chapter nine. And the, especially about the code switching, I've actually done a, I did a whole podcast episode on this topic. I'll link it in the show notes or whatever, but basically the different personas or the, the tones of ourselves that we present in different settings is definitely something that resonates with me. I think, uh, especially being biracial and trying to navigate, you know, going home to white people and being at school with brown skin and being um, the expectations of, well, you're not black enough or you talk white or uh, things like that were very confusing. And so there was there was a way to relate with Michelle there of, you know, needing to navigate different environments. I think as an adult and as um, as a therapist now, I talk with people, or at least I say all the time, my favorite character trait is being genuine. And I haven't always had the courage or the space to do that throughout most of my life. So now as an adult, I am unapologetically genuine. And if people don't like it, then 
you don't need to be in my space. But, you know, of course, being respectful and things like that, but not apologizing for existing is a common refrain that I have. So yeah, definitely that like, quote, talking white, which, you know, there's nuance to that. I mean, it goes back to, and oftentimes it is, uh, especially if you're a person of color, it's usually being told to you by another person of color. And that is, you know, self-policing within our community. And it's, you know, internalized racism, which is a product of being in a uh, a society where there's, you know, systemic differences and stuff like that. But that's definitely a big one, especially as you navigate like academia and various like environments and stuff like that. Nita, what are your thoughts on that? I know you're also a uh, a Black person who's been through the ranks of academia. So what are your thoughts on code switching? Mm. And it's very interesting because I will have still had comments from professors that will say things like, oh, you talk so eloquently, you know how to use diction. And it's just like the expectation that because I'm a black woman, I shouldn't talk a certain way. It's ridiculous. Um, and for me, I think I always go back to this Dave Chappelle skit where it's Little John and Little John, it's, if anybody knows, he's like, college educated has degrees but he's also a rapper so they'll switch between him like talking like he raps and then talking like he's in a boardroom and i'm just like a lot of us have that double consciousness where depending on who we're around we have to be mindful of our decisions of what we say how we say it because we're going to be looked at a certain way and then sometimes it's hard to <clears throat> switch and go back like home or around your friends because they're just like why are you talking like that I've been at work all day. It's just default. It's got to come out. So sometimes it switches flawlessly, but sometimes if it's somebody there that you're not sure about, you're not comfortable with yet, it's still like you don't really turn it off yet because you don't know how this person is going to perceive you. So it's always something in the back of my mind, even in the newsroom where people are just like making jokes. I don't get that same luxury of making all the same jokes because if I say something, Everybody can look at me like I'm the black sheep, but, you know. That I, I grew up, um, it's kind of a unique situation because my maternal grandparents are from Sweden and my paternal grandparents are from the Appalachian Hills of um, Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, that area. And in that area, they make fun of you for getting educated. It's kind of like, a, well, you know, who are you? You know, like, who, who are you to get that education? You know, who do you think you are kind of a thing? But conversely, my mom and I, um, at the age of, I don't know, like five, I think, we moved to a place um, right outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. And I was the minority in my neighborhood. And so, um, you know, I, I, I was surrounded by, you know, people of color. And that's, you know, my kindergarten. Um, my dad used to make fun of the way I pronounced, I think I said crayon, 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 crayons or something, because I said it, I guess, like a black person. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, but um, <clears throat> so for me, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, it's, it's weird because I don't look like I've been through that scenario. And then we moved from there to Roanoke City, which, um, is, you know, my high school is very diverse. Um, but yeah, so I, it, I, I just, I hate, I, I just, I hate, um, I hate that, you know, like, you know, Nita and John's that like, you can't be yourself. Um, 
it's such a cultural difference. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, so I, I kind of, I kind of align with you, um, in a way, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, but my, my experiences aren't nearly like they're, they're not the same at all, but, but I get it. Like I get it. I, I, I code switch in like with my, with my dad and my granddad and that side, like the tone gets louder. The diction is weak. Like we start using different words and stuff. Yeah. So, and my granddad used cuss words like artists use paint. Like that was part of, you know, everybody was a, was a son of a bitch. (laughs) Everybody. He even called my cousin. Even the women. Yeah, he's like, he's a son of a bitch and crab eater. I'm like, what? what? Something I'll add to that is that, I again, as an adult, I, I didn't even have awareness of code switching or what it was or how it worked until I would probably say maybe even in the last five years where it's really come to my awareness of that. I think it's in that process of like shedding the trying to modify myself to make people feel comfortable and, you know, leaning more into that, like, trait of like just being genuine and unapologetically so but i think the the use of code switching and it's not specific only to you know people of of color or uh different you know minorities in various spaces and stuff like that it is basically a mechanism where you're having to modify or change yourself for the sake of making other people comfortable and i think what we all pointed out in our own experiences of code switching is that will modify ourselves to fit in or to make other people uncomfortable to make other people comfortable in say an academic setting or a professional setting but then we may quote forget to turn it off and then we get around our family and peers and the the mode that we're in then makes other people feel uncomfortable so it's almost like it's like it, it wraps around on itself because you really can't be genuine in all places especially if you're like say Nita you said like you'll leave the office and you're kind of in that newsroom mode and then people are like well why are you talking like that you have to then change yourself because you're making them uncomfortable because they and they'll they'll make fun of it or they'll they'll say like hey you're talking funny or whatever but really what's happening is they have their own insecurities and intimidation by that and it's either you shrink yourself or, you know, be your true self. It, it's I, to sum all of that up, it's quite emotionally draining. And a lot of us who we, we, you know, when we code switch, it's not like we're thinking, oh, I must code switch for the situation. It's like subconscious almost. But in uh, spaces where you have to do that often, I think we could all relate that at the end of the day, when you get home, you're like super duper exhausted. Um, just because you're using a lot of brain power to to kind of do that. So, but we're going to hop into going through the different chapters. The uh, chapter eight was called The Whole of Us. And so I guess my cliff notes summary of that would be she's talking about kind of her, you know, she's talked about her friendships in previous chapters. She's talked about her uh, marriage. She's talked about her children. So I think this chapter was for the people who don't fit into those different um, circles. So she kind of gets into talking about her team as first lady and things like that. 
I'll start off the discussion of this chapter with one example that she shared because I feel like it bridges with our last episode or two as we discuss this book. But she uh, talks about Amanda Gorman, I think I'm pronouncing that properly, uh, who is a poet who uh, was at the inauguration, I believe, of Biden, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And what I found interesting, I didn't know much about her, but she talks about how the backstory is that she grew up with a speech um, impairment. And, you know, we I talked in the last episode about how my daughter has a speech delay and, and we all kind of like shared experiences about like IEPs and, um, you know, special education advocating for kids and stuff like that. And so she, um, in sharing um, Amanda's story, she's talking about all the different things she had to overcome in order to get to that point where pretty much everybody knew who she was. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool um, to kind of share the the overcoming uh, story with that. So that was just something that jumped out at me from chapter eight. I'm interested to hear um, what resonated with y'all from chapter eight. Um, I mean, I, I used to have a speech impediment. I had a pretty significant lisp, um, but mainly due to the structure of, I used to have a really big gap in my, my two front teeth, which you can't really say your S is properly until you don't really have a gap. Um, so, I had to go through speech therapy um, for for a bit. And when I didn't know that either, that she could not say her R's. Um, and when she says, you know, go back and, and listen to her and realize how many R's that are in there and, and what a badass move for her to do to really be like, yeah, you know, I am, I am not shying away. I am saying, you know, writing this poem. And I, I bet she wrote it with, a lot of ours specifically because of that and what like what a power bold move for her and that just that 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 was awesome i thought that was really 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 great but i will say the whole of us and you know talking about her team that really annoyed me as a mom who struggled um to do most things on my own um i mean you know i have my husband um, but when you're nursing your child or, you know, you're, you're also working full time, you know, you, you're not paying for someone to clean your house. You don't have a press secretary. You don't have someone to keep your calendar, to keep you on task, to keep you going from here to there, to get your groceries, cook your dinner. I mean, I just, I, I, I felt it very difficult to relate to her. And I kind of, I, I wondered why she brought that up because that's not really relatable to a lot of people. I mean, I understand that, that, you know. It takes a team, but some people don't have that team. So I don't know. I, I just kind of would have liked to see more of a focus on those who don't have that team. That's a that's a good observation. I definitely um, share in that uh, when I was like going through chapter eight, it didn't, I couldn't find as much to um, connect with. Now she shared examples of other people um, and like kind of, I think she said, was it, is it Ali Wong, the comedian? She talked about her and she shared about Amanda Gorman. So she kind of like sprinkled some outside examples, which I think brought it back down because or Mindy Kaling too. Um, and so she kind of gave those examples, which I liked because I love all of those people. But when she's actually sharing about her own story, it kind of fell flat for me because I too, 
can't relate with having a team. I think she, you know, she did her chapter about like family and children and her mom and her marriage and stuff like that. Most of us can relate with that. I, I can't uh, speak on her behalf, but I would imagine she felt like she had to throw in this chapter to kind of shout out her people, you know, kind of like when someone goes up for an award, they, you know, go down the list and they want to make sure they don't forget anybody. That's what this chapter felt like. But so I just wanted to validate that for you, uh, Becky, but uh, did the other two of you had any um, insights or anything that uh, uh, you found interesting from chapter eight? Um, for me, I think it's a young lady, she was talking about China, I think was her name, where she grew up with a parent in jail. So why I didn't get that total feeling, but I grew up single parent, my mom raised me, but I do remember vividly having to take my mom to jail on weekends for like a period of like a year or two, because she got in some, some traffic trouble, didn't play the fines, all that kind of stuff. So it was like, all right leave home from school, go drop your mom off at jail five o'clock and then not pick her up until Sunday evening. And at that time, you know, it's not like I could go to the school and be like, hey, yeah, over the weekends, my mom was in jail. It's just not something you can say. So it's also struggling with that of who who can you really tell in like a professional setting because some people are so used to the norm two-parent household everything's fine so to be challenged to be like well hey I came from a single mom this this and this by statistics I'm not supposed to be here I'm not supposed to be in the newsroom I'm not supposed to have a college education I was supposed to have kids by myself early like as a teenager and all this other stuff and none of those things apply so I think for me to actually talk about stuff like that it makes some people uncomfortable because it challenges what they believe to be true that's really good and um when you shared that i don't know why it didn't dawn on me until just now but i too uh was raised i mean of course i was raised by a single parent but my mother also did weekend time in jail um and i remember the you know and and i guess i can kind of resonate with the uh china in a sense that there's stigma around it. Um, but truly not until this very moment that you shared that insight did I connect the fact that, oh, wait, I had a parent that was in jail too. And um, I think the stigma, it makes sense because I, I think I was in probably end of elementary school, middle school or something when this was going on. And I didn't go to school on Monday like, hey, my mom goes to jail on, you know, uh, the weekends for like stealing. Right. It it wasn't, you know, and in fact, it was discouraged. It, it was don't talk about our business, you know. And so it it's interesting how like I suppressed that down and it literally just came out and I'm, you know, 30 years old. So um, I can I, I guess I can better relate with China now because here she works for, you know, the first lady. And she felt like she was holding on to something that could have possibly destroyed her career or brought some sort of shame on, you know, Michelle Obama. And I do like how down to earth Michelle was in the response. You know, she was like, oh, I just was afraid that you were going to quit or something like that. But that was that was a really good example. Um, I, I would like to add that, um, you know, as a teacher, um no matter what school I've taught in, no matter what demographic that involves, there's always students in there with parents in jail. Um, and because, you know, crime generally does not know, you know, 
it, it crosses socioeconomic and racial lines. And whereas, you know, I had one school where, you know, I had more kids who, you know, had maybe parents in jail for, for drugs or something like that. But then this other school, the one that I teach at now, it's just a very, um, I don't know if you want to call it high profile, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a very competitive school. We'll just say that and it's a public school, but I had a student who I'd known for years and he would come talk to me and he finally said, you know, my dad's in jail for, um, um, fraud for white collar, like checks and stuff like that. And so he, he kind of let me know that it, but it took him years to tell me, um, and then he got put in jail again, you know? So yeah, so he was in jail. He was in jail during his, like maybe when he was in elementary school and then he got put in jail and he was really mad because he's like, my dad's not going to see me graduate college. He's not going to see my brother graduate high school. You know, he, he was really mad, but he, he had, you know, he didn't have weekend jail. His dad had big boy jail um, you know, serving a year or two at a time. So, um, yeah, I, I just connected that too. Um, and I, I think he was afraid to tell someone because he was, he would be judged by the actions of his, his family. Um, especially where that school is now, like, I can't imagine anyone would ever come clean about that, but not come clean. That sounds bad, but you know what I mean? Confide in an adult about what you're going through. Um, I'm kind of tying this all together right now. And, and to me, it's almost a callback to the code switching. Um, I know in last month's bit, book club, I talked a little bit about my my boyfriend and how he calls himself a, a recovering asshole. And I hate how he says that. But I, I mentioned that I also cringed when I know of some of the things that he did when he was younger. And probably one of the reasons that we are close is because we are both in therapy and we can just normalize talking about feelings and talking about struggles. Um, but what I didn't actually share with you all last book club is that he was incarcerated for most of January. Um, he was incarcerated for Thanksgiving and Christmas too. And um, when he was younger, he was incarcerated because of things that he had done wrong. This past go round, it was a waste of a lot of time and money because of someone who accused him of something. Um, I think probably because he was an easy target because of things that he had done when he was younger, but we don't necessarily have a lot of money. Like we're both starting out right now. Um, and so that was really hard because a lot of time and money lost and our first holidays together for something that he didn't do. Everything was dropped, um, but it was only dropped after a continuation multiple times for people who didn't bother to show up to court and tens of thousands of dollars were spent for, you know, an awesome attorney. And that was really stressful. Um, and I also, I relate to the code switching. That's how I have to behave at work. I work for an incredibly, incredibly powerful team. Um, and it's so funny because in my extracurricular activities and my involvement with the community, People will tell me, oh, I, I like that you, you take a stand and you're bold and you're this and you're that. You can only take a stand and you can only be bold in places where it's psychologically safe. And I don't feel a concern 
with the things that I'm bold about. I, I mean, I'm attached to those issues, but I, I think that my opinions are fair and valid. But I've also learned that even though there are times when my opinions may be fair and valid and what I am saying may be reasonable and necessary to be heard, if someone is not committed to hearing me, it might not help the situation. And so uh, there's one one man that I consult for in particular, and uh, I have learned that when he asks me an opinion, it's basically a trick question. I have to be an echo chamber. Um, if I disagree, we will sit there and the discussion will be an argument of why I should feel the, the way he wanted me to feel for forever. If I don't enthusiastically agree, it will also go on for forever. And so listening to Lanita and then also talking about the code switching, I, I feel very seen and very heard in a very sad way tonight because I had to hide from everyone what was going on um, because there's already a massive power dynamic in that type of consulting um, and then add incarceration on top of it. And yeah, we hired, we hired the lawyer that's all over the billboards. Like we, we got top dollar because this would have sent him away to jail for a really long time. And I have never felt more tired in my life than I was the last few months. So it just, just goes to show that it doesn't matter if someone's working in the White House or elsewhere, that the code switching be behaviors or agreements. You just, you really never know what someone's dealing with. You can really never assume that you have it all down. Um, and I think that's been a reminder to me to be, to be gentle and kind but also a reminder that people can change. I didn't always pick great people when I was younger and it's ironic um, being with my, my boyfriend now that he could be the one that really treats me well. I think that on paper, it doesn't look like that, but I was willing to stand by him through all this because he really has changed. Um, so, so sorry, I guess that didn't relate as much to the book so much as it related to Becky and Lanita, but um related very yeah, well that's a lot so sorry no that was great and I think something that you said that jumped out to me was that you can so because I, I was ta- uh, I think about the time that you joined us I was talking about how one of my favorite character traits that I try to embody is being genuine and you said the thing about you can only be yourself uh when it's psychologically safe and that's that's a big component of it, and I, I'm glad that you added that because it added depth. Like, so I can I can sit here and say like, oh, I'm gonna uh, unapologetically be genuine and stuff like that. Well, I only get to do that because I have, you know, worked in so many environments that were not psychologically safe. Right? Uh, I'm now self-employed. I have my own counseling practice, so I don't have to answer to agency rules and stuff like that. But um, I've been in many uh, agency settings where being genuine, for example, you said like you have to in- energetically agree with somebody, otherwise it's going to be a problem. There have been agencies where I'm like, not so much even like being energetically agreeing as much as I'm like, hey, you're committing fraud and I'm not signing that sort of thing. And you will then be the target of everybody. So you have to you know, it's like, well, you want, they wanted me to like sign my name to something fraudulent. And I'm like, well, not doing that. Um, and then you're the the enemy or they're going to try to reform you so that you can be a team player, um, usually phrased in a, 
uh, are you working with the mission? Are you working with us? Are you working against us and stuff like that? So most of those places were not psychologically safe. And I'm glad that you added that that element to it because um, funny enough, in the past, I would say two months, I, well, I think I joined this gym in November, um, but I joined this gym uh, and I try to go several days a week. And in the time that I've been there, two of the owners of agencies that I've worked for, like separate agencies have, I guess, have memberships there. And when I saw them for the first time, each of them uh, was like re-traumatized and triggered just by their their mere presence. Because I remember the the like how psychologically unsafe those environments were, but I didn't quit. I didn't quit the gym. I still go there and I just side eye them when I walk by and I continue with my workout. So, you know, like an adult should. So (laughs) thank you for sharing that. You could also leave though. You'd still be an adult, but I'm glad that you've decided that your workout is for you. There's, there's a little smugness on the inside because um, time and um, gravity have not done them well. So I'm better looking than I was when I was being abused by them now. So there's that if if we got to go for uh, vanity. I was going to sink below if we want to lead into the. <laughs> I was going to say the last chapter of this book is when they go low, we go high. John Zell Anderson does not go high. Um, uh, my alter ego is quite the petty individual. And um, I Honestly, if my alter ego acted on all the things that it thinks, I would be in prison um, because he's a criminal. But we digress. We'll get to that chapter and see what Michelle has to say about it. Uh, Anything else to add? Criminals can change, right? Right. Facts. Yes, we have uh, living proof and an example that was just shared there. So I'm going to transition us into chapter nine, which is the armor we wear. I will preface this with a little bit of a criticism. I felt like the uh, title was not congruent with what was shared in the chapter. Because I'm thinking like the armor we wear, I was hoping that she would go back to the motif of tools. uh, Because that's what she set the book up on. But it didn't really translate well. But anyway, with that being said... Uh, There were a couple of things that jumped out at me. We already talked about the code switching piece, which was in this chapter. There there were two examples that jumped out at me, and then I'll let y'all kind of add to that and share. The first being the um, phrase that people called Michelle when she was uh, first lady. And uh, and it kind of ties with the code switching thing is they would call her mad as hell Michelle because of the angry black woman trope. And I, from uh, reading Becoming and, you know, pretty much just reading any celebrity memoir where you're uh, seeing how someone had to navigate being under the scrutiny of like the public eye, feeling like you can't do anything wrong, otherwise you're going to be perceived a certain way. Um, And I think in that chapter, she talked about how, like, you know, the pressure of being like the first black family in the White House, like, if you don't do this right, we'll never have another one in there again, sort of thing. So that was that was interesting to kind of hear that. I don't think she went into as much detail in Becoming about that. So I appreciated that kind of that insight. And then um, as a great segue into our book for February, um, there was one example she shared about how she uh, met the queen and um, I guess put her arm around her or hugged her or something like that. And it was this huge scandal, you know, and 
you know, it, and, and I think she was being genuine and saying like, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to touch the queen. Right. And as we're going to find out uh, next month for those listening to the podcast, the book that has been selected for February's mental health book club is Spare by Prince Harry. And so since I've already read that book, and then I just, you know, uh, read Michelle's experience with the queen, nobody hugs the queen and even her own grandchildren, even uh, her own son, right? Um, they're, there's um, uh, protocols to be had, and um, oftentimes it's at the expense of just basic human connection. So I just thought that was interesting how she kind of had that experience. And um, of course, if you do something wrong in the public eye, um, it is the news cycle and it lives on forever. But you know, there's simple like human things like giving someone a hug or a pat on the back or, you know, not being, you know, when they called her mad as hell, Michelle, like she doesn't have to like everything that's brought to her or she doesn't have to wear the, I think it was Oscar de la Renta uh, gown because all of the ones since Betty Ford had worn that brand, you know, she's like, I don't have to do that. She got a lot of heat for that. So um, those were my uh, highlights from chapter nine. I'm interested to hear what y'all have to say. I I found that when I was listening to that part about how she hugged the queen and, you know, Michelle, Michelle's um, experience, which is her reality, was that it was because of her, her race. And that's why she, she, you know, the, 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 um, the queen kind of, you know, shrugged away from her when that wasn't the case. It was nobody hugs the queen. That's just out of, out, that's not protocol. But as Americans, we don't have protocol like that. So we're, we're not, you know, no, someone should have told her, you know, her press secretary or however many 75 other people she has helping her she should have told her. Um, but it kind of brings me back to kind of Nita, you said this, um, like, and, you know, part of my lunch group, um, there's, you know, there's a couple of African American ladies in it that we have lunch every day. And I, I just love this group because we're able to have very open and honest dialogue about it. And we had this one um, student in our school who was just an absolute standout leader. She won poetry out loud. She was a national finalist. She um, was, you know, and, and I just, I, I said at lunch, I was like, she's so well-spoken and poised. And from my perspective, it was because she was a child but she's also black, right? So for my, my, I I did not even take into consideration the fact that the black ladies at the table would be like, well, what do you mean? You know, what do you mean she's well-spoken? I'm like, cause she's a kid, you know? So, you know, like Nita, like for you, you're an adult, like that should not even be a question. Of course you're well-spoken because you've been alive for however many years speaking English, you know? And, but and so that kind of, that made them feel that kind of way. But then when I explained my perspective, they were like, oh, well, I didn't really think about that, you know? Um, so it's just interesting, this whole, um, how how your experience colors, you know, maybe that's, you know, make your experience makes your reality. That was a good pun. Just run with it. your experience colors your reality, you know, and I mean, it really does. Um, and, you know, I, and then she talked about how this really resonated with me, how she would bring up like the systemic issues 
that put black people at a disadvantage and not just black, but black, brown people of color, you know, um, you know, the Hispanics and all, you know, lots of different people, you know, um, minimized populations. And I've been talking about that with my friends for a long time. And I've, I used the term white privilege way before now. And, and even my most liberal of friends found that offensive. Like, how dare you call me white privilege? I came from a poor background. I had to pay for, I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. Like it has nothing to do with your, with, with how much money you have. Like it has to do with the fact that you can walk through life with a completely different experience and no fear. Like, and so that, that kind of, I, I, it, that was interesting um, for me that she, you know, I mean, I, I would expect, of course, a black person to bring it up to have um, pushback, you know, especially a black woman, because God forbid any woman who says their opinion, you know, if they're opinionated, they're just a bitch. You know, if they're strong, they're a bitch. But if you're a black woman and you're strong, you're an angry bitch, right? You're an angry black bitch. And it's just, oh, it infuriates me. That is all. And to add to that, there was the part where, you know, she's getting into the first lady role. And at first she's like, okay, let me just follow the playbook of the last, you know, first lady. I'm going to do the little parties. I'm going to support the different things or whatever. But then she dares to have her own ideas. You know, we everyone seemed to quickly forget that she was an entire lawyer, you know, uh, an attorney working before Barack was even licensed by the bar. But he shook his hand that. when he came into the firm for his interview. Yeah, she right? was his boss. <laughs> uh, but you know, she, uh, something that was very important to her was like childhood obesity. So she did the, the movement campaigns and the school nutrition and stuff. And of course the criticism was, oh, she's trying to tell us what to eat. And she, she doesn't care about, uh, you know, uh, jobs of the, the food They're gonna producers. They're going to take our guns next. What's going to happen? Yeah. It's like, well, you're going to tell us what to eat. Are we not, you know, what are we going to be able to read and all of this? And it was just, interesting how and I think this is a this is a common theme with any I when I tell y'all I read memoirs like it's my damn job I really do I devour memoirs um and so that's the thing is like if you're somebody with a platform you're not allowed to make mistakes or and it wasn't a mistake because truly school lunches are equivalent to McDonald's and I loved every bite of it I loved it. But what I'm saying is, you know, God forbid she tried to shake things up and, you know, uh, tackle childhood obesity. It, you know, she, she couldn't, she couldn't win. And, and, and I think that was the thing too, is like, you can't uh, please everybody. And so um, that was just one thing that came to mind uh, when you shared that was how she dared to step outside of the box. And it was like, let's attack her because she's, she's being difficult. One thing that resonates with me, and uh, this is something Brianna brought up previously, where when you're a man and you're assertive, that's what they call you. They don't tell you you're bossy, you're a bitch. But if you're a woman and you're trying to get the same results, especially if you're in a leadership position, you're instantly a bitch. You're instantly, this is because you're a woman. You shouldn't lead. You shouldn't be in Congress. You shouldn't do any of these things because you're irrational, because that's what men think of women, unfortunately. Yeah. 
Yet, who was the one, the recent, um, when they were trying to vote for the Speaker of the House? I didn't see any women, you know, throwing hands, but I did see a man go over to another man and basically threaten his ass if he didn't vote for the correct person. It wasn't a woman. It was a man. And time and time again, you see pictures of men losing their damn minds, you know, throwing, you know, like if their football team loses or whatever, you know, but, you know, it's us hormonal women. Oh, God, she's bleeding again. He's he's just passionate. He's so passionate. She's bleeding again. That's what I was going to say. Listen to anything she says, you know. Is that it's versus assertive and passionate versus emotional. Those like seem to be the ones that go hand in hand. Um, those those adjectives, and I, I try to like just be. I don't know. I think the the most effective way to call attention to that without making it to the point because I think you, again you can be right or you can be effective. But I I I really try to catch it with my students because they're undergrads, and I don't want that to be something they carry into adulthood. So if they come to my office hours and they'll say, oh, so-and-so is so bitchy, I say, she bitchy or is she assertive? And then, oh, she's so emotional. She's hyped up all the time. Is she emotional or is she passionate? I like that. I like that. I like the, yeah, I like that open-ended or even like what makes her emotional, you know, like, and what, yeah. My son tonight just said two words that I he knows he can't say to me, bruh, relax. And I was like, I'm about to throw your ass and you're going to bounce down the street. (laughs) You don't tell your mother to relax. Like you just don't, especially when you've been trying her last nerve for the last 16 years. He could have said bruh, but not relax is just to confirm. I don't really like the bra either. I'm not, his, I'm not, I'm not on that level with him. You know, like come to me when you stop being a little turd and then maybe I'll be your bra. But until then, no, you can call me mom, but the relax, just like, it just grates my nerves. It just makes me think of like, Oh, you know, there's that bitchy female again, you know, and he doesn't really get that. Like he's coming up in a generation where, you know, talking about periods that for girls is normalized where for me, it was very much something to hide and be ashamed of, at least, you know, in, in how I grew up. And it's just, I was talking about it. He's like, well, what's wrong with that? But he's got an older sister and, you know, it's just, I, I have hope. I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying hard. Moving on to chapter 10, which is titled going high. Um, and so everyone knows the, the phrase that is synonymous with Michelle Obama is that when they go low, we go high. And her message throughout this chapter, um, obviously the book is called The Light We Carry. So she is more on the side of like sunny optimism. When they go low, we go high. Basically, we have to be the bigger person. We have to keep shooting for what's right, even when everything is going wrong and all of that. Anybody who knows me personally knows that I don't I don't subscribe to that 100% of the time, but um, yeah, let's let's hop into this chapter, and then I have some some insights that jumped out at me. But I'm I'm going to let one of y'all lead um, 
with this chapter with some things that jumped out for you? Um, and this is probably just because I work in news, so I can't get away from it. Like this latest police brutality killing. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't want to watch it, but obviously working in the news, I didn't really have a choice. But it's like, at what point do you continue to try to go high when all this stuff keeps piling up, keeps piling up, and nothing seems to change? It's frustrating because she made a point to say that eventually the younger generations come to you and ask, at what point do things get better? And for the most part, you can't tell them it will because we've seen over and over again that things don't get better all the time. Even when they decided to go against women's rights to abortion and all of that stuff, something that was in place for 50 plus years and then it's just wiped away. It's like, how do these kids continue to be optimistic about a future that is continuing to see repeats of what happened 50, 60 years ago? And I think, you know, as a therapist, I get asked that question a lot, like, well, how... How am I supposed to be optimistic about the future or whatever? And again, going back to my character trait and importance of being genuine, I flat out will tell the teenager, because I work with a lot of teenagers, that's like my main niche. I tell them this planet and this country is trash and that I, as a 30-year-old person, have seen things get progressively worse throughout my life. Things that were a given in the 90s are not legal now. Like um, things that should have made, like simple things like go to college to get a good job is not true. In fact, you go to college to get into debt to fight for the same shitty jobs. Like the American dream is crumbling into dust. And it sounds very cynical and pessimistic of me, but please find the lie. Now, going to what you said, Nita, about this uh, recent, uh, let me breathe through this one. So I believe that the footage came out on Friday, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, every intention I said, I was like, okay, we know this is coming down. They were talking about it a couple of days in advance when it was going to be released and stuff like that. Um, as a person of color, but really just as a person, first and foremost, the intensity, the frequency and duration of vicarious trauma that have been shoved down our throats over, I mean, truly the past decade, amped up, I believe, in the past few years. Um, 2020 was terrible. I think that was like the 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 peak, but it's getting more. I mean, was it really a peak if it still happens? I don't know. But I had no intentions of watching. And I think it was, was it today's Monday? Yesterday. And truly, I feel like I'm dissociating a little bit as I even talk about this because it's truly very raw and triggering. But I had no intentions of seeing the video. Media has a way of getting to you. And I, I know that it's a business. I know that it's, um, you know, it's what is around us. We can't escape media. But I... Yesterday was Sunday and I went to the gym and the whole day was me crumbling because first I get on the treadmill to run the T, you know, in the gym, they got TVs, 
you know, on a line of TVs, right? And in the morning they have the news on, right? The TV, I kid you not, it was like five feet away from my face. And it was just, I look up after I set the machine and I see that and I am surprised I did not fall. Like when I tell you I lost feeling in my body and if I wasn't already sweating, I'm pretty sure I would have looked like I was crying because I did not want to see that. And then later on, I'm on Instagram and usually there's like a slide, like people will do a, a, like a slide that says, Hey, this is what this is trigger warning or something. If there was no, the, the account that I saw this from was, so I already saw it at the gym a little bit because I looked up and I saw right in the middle of it, but then I saw it on, and I, uh, Imani was talking about this, I believe last time or the, the, the week before about how she heavily curates her her newsfeed so there's nothing that can get to her that she doesn't want there i like to think that i've done that for myself um i have two instagram accounts one for business and one for like personal and how that got through i don't know but when i saw it i immediately was like i can't do this um I posted a little like clothes sign that I got off of uh, like one of those stock image websites. It's literally just like a picture of a window with a clothes sign. And I put a little caption. I said, I'm logging out. I did not ask to see that man be beaten to death. And this vicarious trauma is fucking with me. I didn't say it like that. But basically, that's what's going on. And I said, I don't know if I'm coming back on here, but just wanted to let y'all know I'm logging out. Uh, hashtag self-care. And I deleted the Instagram app off of my phone. Uh, And I know that I can't escape media getting to me, but there's, I think going back to the the topic of this chapter, when they go low, we go high. One of my criticisms for this is that, and we talked about it earlier in the episode, Michelle is writing from a place of great privilege, right? Privilege doesn't just mean that you're a white person or that you're a white male, right? Privilege is, we all have privilege in that we are in the United States, right? Um, There's some privileges that are afforded there. But she's writing from a place of privilege. So when she, you know, even signs off the chapter of when people write for me 10 years from now, my answer is still going to be the same. Do we still go high when they go low? And she says, it's an unequivocal yes. That part right there, reading this in this time, because I read that part today, and I just got mollywopped by all of this stuff uh, being on the news. Um, And it was still on the news when I went to the gym this morning. I just chose a a treadmill that wasn't in front of that uh, particular TV. I can easily tune out the TV that has Fox News on it. It's just like colors, you know. Um, I don't look at that TV. So I was just there and I was like, ah, you know. the 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 tv with the colors and the and the white people with no sound um but hearing that and when she says well it's an unequivocal yes i can't relate with that i can't say that when they go low we go high um and we we don't even have to get into the politics of things um usually we're watching you know <laughs> white officers kill black people this is a little bit different but it's something you know, we won't even get into law enforcement too much, but it's it's a it's systemic. It is a it's a whole big thing. And so the the thing of 
when they go low, we go high. I can't subscribe to that even on my best day because there is very much a limit of you go a little bit too low. Um, I'm going to join you there and we're going to see who's alive at the end. Um, but it just, it cut a little bit. And I know she didn't obviously like plan that, but I, I found myself getting kind of angry and um, not relating with this, this particular um, sentiment, but that was long winded, a little cathartic to like put it all together. Hopefully it made sense. Um, but I just needed to share that cause it is very fresh. So. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. I got teary because I haven't seen it and I can't, I, I don't want to cry, but I can't, I just can't see that anymore. You know, I'm just so fucking done with it. And I didn't see the full George Floyd video until the, um, the trial. Um, but anyway, um, it is, it, it is, it is just so fucking sad. And I, I was raised, you know, I've, I've been through significant trauma throughout my childhood, you know, teens, adult, early, early adult. And I just can't, my, my nervous system cannot take this kind of violence. And, but at the same time, I can't go high with that shit. Like I just can't. And I wasn't raised. <clears throat> I, I kind of got into it with a newspaper man yesterday. <laughs> um, and I, 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 you know, he, the, the, the article was biased about there being a teacher's union in Virginia and there just isn't, it's an association. And anyway, he was, he was an ass about it. And I, um, told him that as part of the digital citizenship curriculum writer for my school and partnering with the entire county, I will be using this email thread and his example of writing as media bias. <laughs> Sorry, Nita. But anyway, I mean, it's, you know, because words are used, like he specifically said teachers union and, and instead of saying the national or the Virginia teachers association or Virginia education assistant. Anyway, but going back to that, I, um, I wasn't raised to go high. I was raised to go lower, if that makes sense. Right. Yes. I'm seriously, it was, you go lower or you're not going to come out of this alive, you know, not, you know, and, you know, like Nita, like you said, like, you know, I, all the odds, I think John Zella said to me before, like, you should not be here. I've had many therapists tell me you should not be here. Um, you know, you should have been knocked up at 15 and in some, you know, I don't know, some other situation, but I, 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 I will hold on to some, I'm a petty bitch and I will hold on to some shit and I will, I will find a time, whether it's six, 10, 12, 14 months later, where it's going to come around. And I, I don't. I'm sorry, Michelle, but you had two parents. You grew up in a family who, where everybody loved you and supported you. You went to Ivy League schools. You had, you know, you were the first lady. And, you know, I was trying to not, um, you know, murder, murder, you know, unlive myself or someone else. So. <laughs> and that's real. And I can't, um, I cannot, I can't watch that abuse. I just can't. 
And and I, I don't want to see it. I hope I don't. Um, but I don't blame you for taking that off your phone. It's 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 self-care. And like Shanza, I know you mentioned like not watching Fox News. Um, the station I work at is actually a duopoly and the fact that we are Fox and NBC in the same building. <clears throat> so why we don't get necessarily the national talking points all the time, like every now and then something is going to float past when I'm at work and I'm going to catch it. There was this gentleman that was saying that um, the reason this happened was because of single black moms. He literally blamed single black moms for these young men killing this young man. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Epidemic of the 80s and the drug war and how that took the dads out of the homes and how, you know, if that hadn't happened in the first place, there'd be fucking dads in the homes in the communities and then the gangs wouldn't exist. That is systemic racism. Right. And they put these men in jail for no good goddamn reason. And so if they actually went back to his, sorry, it, it just, this shit drives me nuts. They are single black women because they took the men away and the men were raised without men and men are needed in families to raise happy, healthy children. Ugh. And to take it a step further, before the war on drugs, we had Jim Crow and the um lynching and incarceration and all of that stuff going on. And then prior to that, we had classic slavery. Um, So this entire country, if they want to go for single Black mothers, they can fuck themselves because this entire country was not built for Black fathers to be around. To the point where I am a Black father and people stop me when they see me out with my daughter or when she was younger and I would like you know, take her on walks in the stroller because it was the freaking pandemic. He'll be like, oh, it's so good to see a Black father with their child. And it makes me sick because I don't want recognition for doing something that I am compelled to do for the life that I created. But it also is heartbreaking in that my experience is that I did not have a father. Um, and I firsthand have experienced fatherlessness. But if we look at history, it's not you know, people like to make a small statement. It's like, well, first of all, tragedy, hello, this man died. Um, and this this stuff should not continue to happen, but it happens all the time. It doesn't matter if the officers are black or white, it's going to keep happening. That's a conversation for another day. But uh, to make it so simple and say, oh, it's because of this one little thing. Truly, for me, if I talk about like, feel like getting stabbed in the stomach, this is pulling the knife up and then twisting. Like when you come back with such a pithy small thing and you probably haven't read a fucking book about anything that is actually contributing to what is happening. It, it, it just, it's, it's insult to injury. And, um, but anyway, there's me going on a tangent of a tangent, but I will say needed to what you were saying. And I think the the vein that you were on is that people will try to give a simplistic answer to something that far exceeds our entire existence. Like generations have been set up for this sort of thing to happen. And I don't know, uh, Michelle might've flopped on this last uh, chapter here because I'm not finding. And I, and I know that this is a very charged, like raw, like situational time, but this is just the time of this month. Somebody else is going down next month and the month after that. 
probably a couple per month in the in the summertime just for fun. You know, it's warm outside. Um, the shit's going to keep happening. It's not coming to an end anytime soon. And I don't know, just the experience of like a pithy, like, uh, you know, live, laugh, love. And when they go low, we go high. It's like, no, uh, I'm right there with you, Becky. I uh, proudly display my doctorate uh, degree and pettiness uh, on the wall um, in all spaces. So that's me. But, you know, go back to discussing this chapter. If you have anything else to add, I'm cynical as fuck. I'm just going to mute myself and gather my <laughs> gather myself together but please do share some insights if you got some from this because i have a few i have a few that i'll share but i want to let y'all have some time too maybe not really speaking to cynicism but i do think there is such thing as a healthy dose of apathy i don't think it's wrong to look away i don't think it's wrong to know that boundary. And I think something that's really important to me is that everybody care about something and care about it deeply and passionately and for always and and take that up. Um, Regardless of how you feel about Mother Teresa, I get pretty on the fence about her. But I think that a very um, powerful quote of hers is when she was asked about children in Africa, she said, I don't think about them. And people demonized her for that. Uh, But her point was that Calcutta was where her heart was, her efforts, her intentions, et cetera. And we have a capacity to do so much, whether it be with our time, our talents, our life, et cetera, that that has to be the thing that she looks away from. And so for me, that is all the garbage on my street. I look away from the garbage because I'm busy doing other things in my community. But I also think that we can take that concept to to other things. So I haven't watched it yet because I know that I have many meetings this week. I'm a DEI consultant. As a result of what's happened, we're worried about uh, potential protests that in our community in the past have turned into riots. We have, we have other things to focus on. And so while that is really, really important to me, I know that I can't look away. Like justice is important to me. And I know that that, that time expense, that emotional energy expense right now does not serve the end goal. I think there's a difference between choice of limit and choice of true apathy. And I think that, I think that those are different things. And I think that boundary is something that we have to redraw every day based in, in how we show up in the setting how psychologically safe it is. What's my energy level? What's my capacity? What's my support? What's my system? Um, so I really appreciate hearing that from everyone tonight, because that can be a hard thing to do. It can be a hard thing to make that choice because it can feel, you know, truly apathetic that it sounds crappy. It sounds like you don't care when sometimes the choice is because we care so much. Thank you. And there's a couple of nuggets from this chapter that I'll share because it goes hand in hand with what you just said. You shared about Mother Teresa and how her heart was in a certain place with with where she could uh, put her energy at 
And Michelle Obama talks about budgeting her energy in this chapter. And I think that's a great example of, you know, Mother Teresa budgeted her energy. Like, you know, yes, she's asked about children in Africa, but that's not particularly where she was able to give her energy to. And it's not that, you know, if she was presented with information or um, the plight of, you know, children in Africa that she wouldn't care, but not all of us have the full, you know, we all have uh, a limited battery of what we can budget of our energy each day, right? We can't be everything to everybody. So I think that was a great example um, that kind of tied back to what she shared in the chapter. But also, um, she talked about in the chapter about being okay with saying, I don't know, because especially, you know, we go back to, you know, Nita brought this up and I'm glad that she did. But she said, like, when kids are like, well, is the future going to get better or whatever? I can't say anything other than I don't know. And, you know, I throw humor in there. I'm like, truly, this place is a dumpster fire. I'm glad that you're still here and that you're trying to go to college. Right. And it it normalizes for them like, yeah, this is hard. Um, and we don't have all the answers, but we also can't just lay down and give up. So she was just talking about being okay with saying, I don't know. Um, or in your case, you know, you, you have other pressing things like sitting on your desk that you have to uh, kind of budget that energy for. And you don't know what the, what is actually going to happen, but you're trying to do the best that you can with the the scope of influence and the limited energy that you have. So I just wanted to tie those two notes that I was going to share anyway, because I thought that you gave good examples there. But anybody else, any other insights from chapter 10? Maybe this is just me being like nitpicking it a little bit, but the fact that she talks about several times how it's so easy to like throw it on a t-shirt and sell it on Etsy. Like, I mean, yeah, but if you're not going to, necessarily do anything but try to make a profit out of it like what's the point you're not solving anything for anybody else really what bothered you about that in particular i mean it's not necessarily coming from her right she's not the one selling it but people will find a quote and be so enamored with it and like oh this is great but if you're not taking any action behind this quote to positively affect change what is the point of you trying to make a profit out of it? Like, if you're not going to take some of those profits and try to help your community, are you donating to a food bank? Are you doing this or that with it? Then you're not really living by what she says this quote is supposed to be. You're just trying to make a profit off of somebody else's work. So I'm going to pivot us to something that I liked about this chapter, because while this, this episode is definitely a little bit more criticism, and that's perfectly fine. Um, we all experience things differently. I liked the example, and I want to say she shared this example in Becoming as well, but I'm not 100%, I can't remember. But she talked about how, um, so this chapter is like going high. So she's like uh, talking about like life lessons and she's trying to like tie it all together. But where basically uh, somebody had said like, are we rich or something like that? And so dad gets his paycheck. And he converts it all to cash and he just brings home all this money and then sits it out. And the kids are like, oh my gosh, we have so much money. But then he goes and grabs the folder of bills and they divvy it up of, okay, well, this much goes to the mortgage. This much goes to the electricity. This one goes to the car payment and the gas. 
Um, and then when they got to the end, it was 20 bucks left. And that was for the luxuries, right? Like going to get ice cream or going to the movies or something like that. I really liked that, you know, for as much as we can, you know, and we may feel like that we can't resonate completely with Michelle because she did grow up to live a life of great privilege. Um, I do like her anecdotes about her humbler upbringings because that's the stuff that clicks with me. That's the stuff that kind of teaches lessons and, you know, gives me something to take home to apply to my own life. Right. So I just really enjoyed that example. There's nothing that profound of it other than that was a cool example. And I, I can definitely see myself doing something along those lines with my child someday. I I agree. I like the um, the beginning parts first. And whenever she brings back in bits of her upbringing, it's much more relatable to me than, you know, I guess once she went to Ivy League school. I don't know. Um, which she obviously earned that. And I don't want to take that away from her. You know, um, but yeah, I will say that um, <clears throat> there's a really cool app for kids <laughs> that it, you can give them actual money when they do chores and then they can budget it. They can put it in the stocks or whatever. Um, so John Zell, when, you know, when your little miss gets older, that's something that's cool that, to teach her the value of money. Um, but yeah, it's. Kids don't really, they really don't, even my 22-year-old who's getting ready to graduate college doesn't have a full grasp of how much she costs. <laughs> and when I mentioned, I was like, okay, so when you graduate and you'll be making more than me because you're going to be a nurse, um, I think you'll be able to start paying some things. And she got a little frustrated. She just wants to come home and spend 80 grand. Or, or not spend, save, save 80 grand, whatever, whatever her nurse salary is. I know. We're like, her no. room has been rented out. It's unavailable. Well, I'm, sit I'm sitting in her hoarder's paradise of a room. Um, anyway. Yeah. I, I definitely resonated more with the younger, younger bits. So we've made it to the end of this book, y'all. We, we made it to the end. Um, any takeaways, any, anything that is gonna, you know, any sign off, anything that we want to like walk away from this book reflecting on from anybody? I mean, I've been, I've been chuckling at toilet paper rolls ever since mm -hmm. our last session. It's been awesome. That, <laughs> and I mean, you know, there, I guess try to be a better human maybe that I you know, may maybe I could one point go high. I don't know. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.